This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 39, The Last Chapter, The Mystery of a Pageant Once upon a time, it seems centuries ago, I was prevailed on to take a small part in one of those historical processions or pageants which happened to be fashionable in or about the year 1909. And since I tend, like all who are growing old, to re-enter the remote past as a paradise or playground, I disinter a memory which may serve to stand among those memories of small but strange incidents with which I have sometimes filled this column. The thing has really some of the dark qualities of a detective story, though I suppose that Sherlock Holmes himself could hardly unravel it now, when the scent is so old and cold, and most of the actors doubtless long dead. This old pageant included a series of figures from the eighteenth century, and I was told that I was just like Dr. Johnson. Seeing that Dr. Johnson was heavily seamed with smallpox, had a waistcoat all over gravy, snorted and rolled as he walked, and was probably the ugliest man in London. I mention this identification as a fact and not as a vaunt. I had nothing to do with the arrangement, and such fleeting suggestions as I made were not taken so seriously as they might have been. I requested that a row of posts be erected across the lawn, so that I might touch all of them but one, and then go back and touch that. Failing this, I felt that the least they could do was to have twenty-five cups of tea stationed at regular intervals along the course, each held by a Mrs. Thrale in full costume. My best constructive suggestion was the most harshly rejected of all. In front of me in the procession walked the great Bishop Berkeley, the man who turned the tables on the early materialists by maintaining that matter itself, possibly, does not exist. Dr. Johnson, you will remember, did not like such bottomless fancies as Berkeley's, and kicked a stone with his foot, saying, I refute him so. Now, as I pointed out, kicking a stone would not make the metaphysical quarrel quite clear. Besides, it would hurt. But how picturesque and perfect it would be if I moved across the ground in the symbolic attitude of kicking Bishop Berkeley. How complete an allegoric group, the great transcendentalist walking with his head among the stars, but behind him the avenging realist with uplifted foot. But I must not take up space with these forgotten frivolities. We old men grow too garrulous in talking of the distant past. This story scarcely concerns me either in my real or my assumed character. Suffice it to say that the procession took place at night in a large garden, and by torchlight, so remote is the date, that the garden was crowded with Puritans, monks, men-at-arms, and especially with early Celtic saints, smoking pipes, and with elegant Renaissance gentlemen, talking cockney. Suffice it to say, or rather it is needless to say, that I got lost. I wandered away into some dim corner of that dim shrubbery where there was nothing to do except tumbling over tent-ropes, and I began almost to feel like my prototype and to share his horror of solitude and hatred of a country life.
In this detachment and dilemma I saw another man in a white wig advancing across this forsaken stretch of lawn, a tall, lean man, who stooped in his long black robes like a stooping eagle. When I thought he would pass me, he stopped by my face and said, Dr. Johnson, I think, I am Paley. Sir, I said, you used to guide men to the beginnings of Christianity. If you can guide me now to wherever this infernal thing begins, you will perform a yet higher and harder function. His costume and style were so perfect that for the instant I really thought he was a ghost. He took no notice of my flippancy, but turning his black robe back on me, led me through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways, until we came out into the glare of gaslight at laughing men in masquerade, and I could easily laugh at myself. And there, you will say, was an end of the matter. I am, you will say, naturally obtuse, cowardly, and mentally deficient. I was, moreover, unused to pageants. I felt frightened in the dark, and took a man for a spectre whom, in the light, I could recognize as a modern gentleman in a masquerade dress. No, far from it. That spectral person was my first introduction to a special incident which has never been explained, and which still lays its finger on my nerve. I mixed with the men of the eighteenth century, and we fooled as one does at a fancy-dress ball. There was Burke, as large as life, and a great deal better looking. There was Cowper, much larger than life. He ought to have been a little man in a nightcap, with a cat under one arm and a spaniel under the other. As it was, he was a magnificent person, and looked more like the master of Ballantrae than Cowper. I persuaded him at last to the nightcap, but never alas to the cat and dog. When I came the next night, Burke was still the same beautiful improvement upon himself. Cowper was still weeping for his dog and cat, and would not be comforted. Bishop Berkeley was still waiting to be kicked in the interest of philosophy. In short, I met all my friends, but one. Where was Paley? I had been mystically moved by the man's presence. I was moved more by his absence. At last I saw advancing toward us across the twilight garden a little man with a large book and a bright, attractive face. When he came near enough, he said in a small, clear voice, I'm Paley. The thing was quite natural, of course. The man was ill and had sent a substitute. Yet somehow the contrast was a shock. By the next night I had grown quite friendly with my four or five colleagues. I had discovered what is called a mutual friend with Berkeley, and several points of difference with Burke. Cowper, I think it was, who introduced me to a friend of his, a fresh-faced, square and sturdy, framed in a white wig. This, he explained, is my friend so-and-so. He's Paley. I looked round at all the faces by this time fixed and familiar. I studied them, I counted them. Then I bowed to the third Paley as one bows to necessity. So far the thing was all within the limits of coincidence. It certainly seemed odd that this one particular cleric should be so varying and elusive. It was singular that Paley alone among men should swell and shrink and alter like a phantom while all else remained solid. But the thing was explicable. Two men had been ill, and there was an end of it. Only I went again the next night, and a clear-coloured, elegant youth with powdered hair bounded up to me and told me with boyish excitement that he was Paley. For the next twenty-four hours I remained in the mental condition of the modern world. 
I mean the condition in which all natural explanations have broken down and no supernatural explanation has been established. My bewilderment had reached to boredom when I found myself once more in the colour and clatter of the pageant, and I was all the more pleased because I met an old schoolfellow, and we mutually recognised each other under our heavy clothes and hoary wigs. We talked about all those great things for which literature is too small, and only life large enough, red-hot memories and those gigantic details which make up the characters of men. I heard all about the friends he had lost sight of and those he had kept in sight. I heard about his profession and asked how at last he came into the pageant. The fact is, he said, a friend of mine asked me, just for tonight, to act a chap called Paley. I don't know who he was. No, by thunder, I said, nor does anyone. This was the last blow, and the next night passed like a dream. I scarcely noticed the slender, sprightly, and entirely new figure which fell into the ranks in the place of Paley, so many times deceased. What could it mean? Why was the giddy Paley unfaithful among the faithful found? Did these perpetual changes prove the popularity or the unpopularity of being Paley? Was it that no human being could support being Paley for one night and live till morning? Or was it that the gates were crowded with eager throngs of British public thirsting to be Paley, who could only be led in one at a time? Or is there some ancient vendetta against Paley? Does some secret society of deists still assassinate anyone who adopts the name? I cannot conjecture further about this true tale of mystery, and that for two reasons. First, the story is so true that I have had to put a lie into it. Every word of this narrative is veracious, except the one word, Paley. And second, because I have got to go into the next room and dress up as Dr. Johnson. The End of Chapter 39 The End of G. K. Chesterton's Tremendous Trifles